prior to using Sebastian Hawk's method of of uh, super tip stitch, I I had patients taping a lot, but since using that technique, I can honestly say that I haven't had to ask patients to tape. A warm welcome to this episode of the Rhinoplasty Podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. So we are kicking off the month of May with the Young Guns, and it's brought to you by Vectra from Canfield Scientific. Vectra does the most awesome 3D photography system. Uh, I love using it, and a big shout out and thank you to Vectra for supporting this month. The month of the Young Guns, and it's, I'm, I'm delighted, our first speaker um, hails from the United States of America, lives in Miami in Florida, and I met him for the first time four years ago. I was really impressed with this guy because he had been mentored by two of the legends of Rhino Pass in the United States of America. That was Dr. Balman Gairon and Dr. Rod Rorick. And he, I met him whilst he was a fellow with Dr. Rorick, and sure, I have worked very hard. He also knew where the best burritos were in Dallas, which I loved. And recently, he's become the dad to Anna and Miles, who are now 10 weeks old. So it's an absolute pleasure to welcome Dr. Paul. Thank you so much for having me, Cameron. It's uh, always a pleasure to catch up with you and um, even more so to get together and talk about rhinoplasty. So, Paul, the last time we chatted in person was when you were in South Africa 18 months ago at our Saucer Congress. I see those palm trees in, in, in the background. They're very similar to what we had in Durban. How, things, how have things been with you in the last 18 months? It's been great. You know, um, we obviously had a little bit of a hiatus, as I'm sure you did with uh, the pandemic. But, um, you know, when we reopened our doors, uh, I really didn't know what to expect when we got back to the office. I... I really thought we were going to be twiddling our thumbs and and just seeing what panned out. But much to my surprise, um, the demand was huge. Uh, And I I really don't know what to attribute that to. Uh, A lot of people suggest that it was meetings just like these, uh, Zoom meetings where people were uh, looking at themselves on camera. People had a lot of free time on their hands. And um, uh, as we all know, the pandemic was a great time to kind of go under the radar and recover from surgery. So we uh, were very fortunate, um, one, to be um, very much in demand, and two, to um, stay safe all the while. Uh, Knock on wood, none of our patients um, were uh, infected during their care, and none of my staff were either. So... Uh, we're very fortunate in that regard. Oh, that's awesome. But, Paul, you know, I mean, you, you're very humble in this thing. I mean, the training that you got under Spencer Cochran, I mean, we haven't even spoken about Spencer, but Rod and, and Barman, that the guys have really been able to, on the one hand, teach you and nurture you, but you've got this in Intense drive to be successful at the same time. I know you're very laid back, but you're, you never underestimate Paul. You are so on top of your game. So I think, you know, I think it's it's yes, COVID is changing, but but you've put a hell of a lot of effort in to to get to where you're at now. Eh? 
Yeah, well, thank you, Cameron, for uh, recognizing that. You know, it, it, it's it's funny. Everyone, uh, I don't love talking about myself, but everyone always tells me that I, I seem very laid back. And uh, I'm all, when I hear that, I'm always thinking in my head, gosh, I wish I was as laid back inside of this head as, as I come off as being. Um, but, but you're right. I, um, I think you and I share a lot of similarities in the fact that we just love what we do and we're just truly passionate about that. And, um, that's really just such a gift. Um, but, but when you love something and you're, you're that passionate about it, you, you, the, the drive just comes organically. Um, so I, love plastic surgery i love rhinoplasty and um it's fun for me if you were to talk to my wife um you know there are many saturday nights where uh you know i'm sitting on the couch and yeah there may be a couple drinks involved but i'm typically reading something about plastic surgery and uh (laughs) um you know she often pokes fun at me about it but but she's a great sport, and she loves seeing me do what I enjoy. And, and unfortunately, you don't have all that much time with these two new little ones, like twins, to start off with. That's next level. How, how are they doing? <laughs> they're, they're fantastic. Thank you for asking. Miles and Anna, um, we're, we're really blessed, both uh, healthy little troublemakers and um, – you know, the weekends are, are my time to spend some time with them and um, really appreciate them. And it, it's funny, by the time Sunday night comes around, I am just exhausted. And I never thought that work would be refuge and sort of uh, relaxation, but it's, it's funny how, how things have evolved. Oh, not true. So, so, Paul, I'm sure there are many people around the world, the, the people who are really going to listen to this podcast, I think – a lot of the young guys, but I think some of the people who've been experienced would also learn a lot from the topic you're going to speak about. But let's just explore a little bit. I'm so intrigued to know what was your journey within getting to medicine, getting into plastic surgery and doing these fellowships. Um, how did you end up being able to be mentored by Barman, by Spencer, by Rod? Tell us about that journey. Yeah, so uh, it, it's a great story. Um, when I was about 17 years old, yeah, I was in a little bit of an accident, and uh, I broke my nose. And, you know, it, it, it didn't bother me much then at all. Um, I ignored it, and I did what any, for the most part, most 17-year-old uh, young boys would do and just ignore it and get on with doing what it is you like to do at that time you know I was into sports into you know girls all, all the all the things that we like to do at that age and um, I can remember about two two years later in college I was looking at one of my college IDs and uh, I noticed how oddly shaped uh, the curvature in my nose was. And, um, and then I I suppose I got to an age where I I became very sensitive about it, but it really started to bother me. And at the time I grew, I I was my, I was born and raised in Ohio, not too far from Cleveland. And, uh, my dad 
uh, is a physician. He's retired now, but uh, my parents knew of Dr. Guyron and his reputation and pretty much um, everywhere, but particularly in northeastern Ohio. Uh, and I went and saw him. And to make a long story short, uh, I had a rhinoplasty uh, by Dr. Guyron when I was about 19 years old. And I just remember being so impressed with him even before the surgery, just his professionalism, the way he carried himself, his integrity. And um, uh, I had surgery and, and it, I was just so amazed with what he was able to do uh, that from that point on, I had just, I, it hit me like a ton of bricks that I wanted to be a plastic surgeon. Uh, of course, there were some bumps along the road, and um, you know we all have our challenges, and our paths are somewhat circuitous at times. But um, here I am, and um, and I, you know, I've had many, many mentors along the way that I'm very grateful for. But he is pretty much the one who ignited that fire within me. Wow! And then from Ohio, how did you end up in Dallas? So I did my, uh, I went to medical school, I went to college in New York, I went to medical school in Chicago. Um, I did my plastic surgery training at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, which um, was just one of the greatest experiences that one could have. It, it was in, in plastic surgery training. It was a very intense seven years. We took a lot of call, a lot of hand trauma call. Uh, which I don't miss for a second, but um, it, it it made me the quintessential uh, plastic surgeon, in, in my opinion. Um, it was hard, but I learned so much during those seven years, and I'm so grateful for my mentors there. But, uh, you know, I loved every minute of my training, um, whether it was micro, I would be on my microsurgery rotations and, and I would think to myself, this is what I want to do. I would be on my hand surgery rotations and I would think I could see myself doing this. And, um, you know, you sort of, you really have to tease out uh, what reality is and what, what you think you're going to do. And, and my passion, and I, I think from my initial interest in plastic surgery, my passions were aesthetic surgery. Um, so I, I had to make that decision towards the end of residency, uh, you know, which path I wanted to pursue. And once I determined that it was aesthetic surgery, you know, I aimed for the, the moon and the stars. And, um, you know, fortunately, when you, um, your mentors see, you know, how, how much you enjoy what you do and um, how seriously you take it, they're willing to get behind you and, and, and um, uh, support you in your quest for the best fellowship out there. And uh, at the time, um, yeah, I interviewed a, a a few places that all of which were f phenomenal, and uh, but I I decided on Dallas, and I was uh, very grateful to have the opportunity to be there. Um, so, so uh, uh, we we've got uh, Rod on next month. Um, I, I still I mm -hmm. think I'll never forget the first day I walked in there, and he shook my hand and he asked me, "Am I living the dream?" And 
in South Africa, we don't speak about how you're living the dream. <laughs> I think we live the dream in this country. It's just part of who we are. No, joking. It's not really always a dream. But uh, what a dynamic, busy human being and productive and on the go. It, it was amazing. And to be, un I mean, you guys were in theater from six o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock at night. I was astounded. I was there for three weeks the first time and thinking, wow, this is next level stuff, eh? How, how was your time in Dallas? Yeah, you know, it, it was incredible. Um, it was incredible. But I, I remember meeting you very well. Uh, you know, it, it was in the morning and there were always reps coming and going and, um, you know, trying to... Uh, and, and there were a lot of visitors, and um, I, I remember seeing you, and I, I wasn't quite sure whether you were a rep for implants or something like that. And then, you know, we got to chatting, and I realized that you were, um, you know, had traveled from South Africa. And so uh, I think right away we clicked, and I remember we went out and got some lunch, and, uh, you know, I think uh, there were a couple days where Dr. Rorick was in clinic, so... Um, you know, uh, you had an opportunity to spend some time with Spencer, who is another phenomenal rhinoplasty surgeon. Um, but yeah, I remember that quite well. Uh, the fellowship was, it, it, it was the most intense, uh, most fun year I've had to date. Um, you know, we, Dr. Rorick, his energy is just so contagious. And I think my energy level and enthusiasm triples when I'm around him. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just go, 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 go with him. And sometimes you have to, um, you kind of, when, if you really want to be productive and get some work done, you know, you, you, you kind of have to hide from him to get the things done that he wants you to get done. Cause otherwise he's just sitting there piling it on you. Uh, with each, with every minute you're there, so you gotta you gotta give him a time out, go and get the things done that he's asking of you, and and then return and for some more. So you know what the amazing thing is that in the time I was there, he challenged me and he asked me, "Do we have a rhinoplasty society in South Africa?" And I said no, and he said, "Well, go do it." And a couple of months later, we started Saucer, and from Saucer we started our Congress, where you guys came. And then with lockdown, we started all those webinars, came, that came World Rhinoplasty Day. And the fact that we're sitting here doing the Rhinoplasty podcast is from that. So it's fantastic. Kudos to him. I mean, inspires us, gives us energy, and then we do that to the next yeah. generation. Exactly, exactly. And kudos to you too, Cameron. I mean, from, you know, from all of these efforts you've made, I think we're all – you know, we're all learning quite a bit from you. No, so right. no, thank I mean, you so much about. for your efforts. The nice thing about the, the whole rhinoplasty like family is the guys are very keen to teach each other. So on this point, let's now climb into the topic you want to speak about. I think this is a fantastic topic. And um, if, if you don't know how to deal with dead space, you're going to be dead in the water. Eh? I, well, I think so. I, I've certainly learned the hard way. Okay, so please share your screen and but um, oh, yeah, you know, I'll remind you as you as you sharing the screen, uh, quite a few people can't necessarily watch this on YouTube, so they're listening on the different platforms. So you got to kind of speak as if somebody can't necessarily see what you're going to be showing. 
Okay. So um, I have no nothing to disclose. Uh, briefly, I just want to talk about my rhinoplasty mentors. Like we talked about, Dr. Guyron was uh, the one who really sparked my interest in rhinoplasty. And I spent some time with him as a medical student, and we uh, wrote this article about the cocaine nose. Um, I think this was published in uh, 2006 in PRS, but uh, I spent some time doing research with him, and um, this patient uh, suffered some defects of the nose, all related to cocaine use. And this was the kind of uh, result that... Uh, I was first exposed to when uh, doing rhino, uh, research in rhinoplasty. So uh, I think it goes without saying that this result is incredible, that um, ailer collapse, that saddle deformity, uh, retracted um, ala bilaterally, and just c complete destruction of the internal lining of the nose, all restored with uh, um, several reconstructive rhinoplasty principles. So. Um, we can see in all angles that this particular patient uh, was essentially um, had all the signs of uh, a collapsed nose from cocaine use completely corrected with uh, uh, reconstructive rhinoplasty principles. So uh, we wrote this article in Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery and as well as a book chapter in the third uh, edition of Dallas Rhinoplasty. Um, another one of my rhinoplasty mentors in Dallas was Dr. Steve Bird, who really knows needs no introduction. Uh, Dr. Spencer Cochran, who is the successor of Dr. Jack Gunter, and uh, obviously uh, Dr. Rorick needs no introduction. I, I can't thank him enough for all of his mentorship and um, all of his motivation in, in living the dream and pursuing um, you know excellence in plastic surgery. And I think we all owe a little debt of gratitude to Dr. Gunter, who truly was a pioneer in rhinoplasty and pushed us all to be um, better each with each and every case. Um, Cam, are you still there? I'm listening. That's great. It's amazing to be walking like in, in the feet of those people who've come before. It sure is. It sure is. So uh, let's talk a little bit about dead space. So in rhinoplasty, most of the time we're we're delaminating the nose. You know, we're sort of popping the hood. We're you know taking the skin off of the underlying architecture. Um, to see what's under there and change the shape of the things that are under there uh, so that ultimately it manifests in a better contour of, of the nose. Um, you know, preservation rhinoplasty is just such a wonderful um, paradigm uh, shift that, you know, some of us have um, uh, accepted totally and some of us are on the fence. But nevertheless, it, it truly is forcing us to um, think more critically about our results and how uh, we can get our patients there in a less invasive way. Um, so ligament preservation is a, a, a very important part of this uh, new paradigm in uh, preservation rhinoplasty. But ligament preservation, in my hands anyway, it's not always possible. Uh, and... Uh, uh, particularly in revision surgery, 
um, you know, a lot of times those ligaments have been destroyed in in the prior surgery. So uh, we've got to do our best to reconstruct them and, and reestablish those connections uh, between skin and the underlying frame. And so this is an example of how we do open rhinoplasty. We delaminate the nose. Uh, we separate that skin from the underlying uh, cartilage and bone. And, um, and we manipulate those underlying structures. And for a long time, we just made the false assumption that, okay, we've, we've done what we needed to do to this underlying architecture. The skin should just follow suit. Skin, just do what, what, you know, just follow the contours of this underlying architecture and don't, you know, don't give us any issues. Um, unfortunately, skin is doesn't doesn't work that way. It's it's a little bit stubborn, and it's not necessarily going to relaminate in the way that we want it to. Um, and even more specific than that, um, if we if we really narrow in on what what the issues are, it's it's really the super tip. So. Um, Will the super tip fall into that concavity? Will it fall into that um, that differential that we've created between the dorsum and the tip defining points? Um, I have found that often the answer is pretty unpredictable, and you know we work so hard in rhinoplasty to um, be consistent and be predictable and um, deliver. And when you have this element of unpredictability of how the skin is going to lay down and um, and recreate those contours, you know, for me that's that was too much of a a wild card. It is too much of a guessing game. So, you know, I really went to the liter to the literature and I. I um, uh, and, and forced myself to to look at ways that we could improve in this area. So just a little bit of anatomy, um, you know, with regard to the nasal tip complex. And thank you to Dean Toriyumi for this uh, schematic photo that we've all used countless times. But it's just such a wonderful depiction of of the nasal tip. Um, but uh, I've marked out what I believe are the uh, tip-defining points here, as well as the super-tip breakpoint. So this is really that transition between the dorsum and the tip-defining points. Uh, and, you know, whether you actually have some super-tip break or whether you just have a smooth transition from dorsum to the tip-defining points, we need to be able to control that. And one thing that can really mar a result, in my aesthetic opinion, is to have fullness in the area of the super tip. So, um, you know, it's one thing to have a flat dorsum to tip defining point uh, transition. It's obviously creates a little bit of elegance and... Um, and beauty to a nose to have a little bit of super tip break, but... Having super tip fullness to me just uh, can very quickly ruin an otherwise 
uh, nice aesthetic result. Uh, with respect to the rest of the nose, uh, there's the columellar lobular breakpoint that can be an important aesthetic landmark, the soft tissue triangles, and the infratip lobule. So in rhinoplasty, the overwhelming majority of the time, the nature of rhinoplasty is reductive. Uh, yes, there are times where we're building the nose back up and building the dorsum and uh, creating more tip projection. But most of the time, I think it's safe to say that we're reducing the dorsum. So that dorsum is coming down, whether you're doing that through preservation techniques or um, the Joseph um, technique. Oftentimes, we want to create a little more tip projection or tip shape. So, so we're, do, we're making these manipulations of the dorsum and the tip, yet we we want to preserve this super tip break point. Um, and when we reduce a dorsal hump, you know, there is skin laxity, there's skin memory. And when we create more tip projection or more definition to the tip, oftentimes I find that that tense, um, that uh, uh, nasal skin. So you have a tenting type of effect. So, for us to assume that you're just going to get uh, a recession in the super tip uh, area, I think is is um, is a little bit too unpredictable. So again, here are the tip defining points or the um, uh, the peak of tip projection, and here's that differential between the tip defining points and the dorsum. Um, so we really want skin to uh, recess here a little bit um, in a very incremental and calculated fashion. Um, so, so how do we do that? Uh, fortunately, I had the exposure with uh, Dr. Guyron, having spent time with him as a medical student, uh, and really just uh, you know reading every piece of literature that he's ever written, uh, you know, he came across this issue uh, and expressed a lot of frustration about it through this article um, in PRS decades ago, um, which is called Super Tip Deformity, A Closer Look. So the gist of that article is basically, uh, you know, what is happening in the super tip after these open rhinoplasties? Why why are we losing that contour, that um, that elegant transition from dorsum to the tip-defining points that we work so hard for during surgery? And this is just one example he put in his article. You know, I, I think this is absolutely an, an acceptable result, but to someone like uh, uh, Dr. Guyron, you know, this, this is... Um, uh, we can do better, and and it's and it's that attitude that has forced us all to pursue better outcomes. Um, so this is, um, uh, th and this is one of my earliest results in in my practice. And you know, this result is acceptable. Um, you know, the majority of the hump is gone, and you know, the tip has a little bit better definition, a little bit more tip projection, but it would I ever show this result as something I'm proud of? Probably not. Um, but I, I can tell you that I learned a great deal from this case. Uh, and, and it's one of the cases that really pushed me to, um, uh, 
uh, figure out a way to control super tip a little bit more. So um, in in that article from PRS um, by Dr. Guyron, essentially how he uh, came up with his plan on dealing with super tip fullness and creating uh, uh, control in the super tip breakpoint is he would he closes the nose uh, temporarily with one stitch in the columella and he uses a, a very fine needle i i now use a 30 gauge needle to determine where we exactly where we want that super tip breakpoint and so um you know i i we push a he, in this article he pushed the needle through then uh, the needle is held there, and he uses methylene blue to tattoo that area, reopens the nose, and he sees the mark of that methylene blue um, uh, on the inside of the nose. And he uses that to pass a suture, um, partial thickness from the undersurface of the skin envelope down to um, the... Um, uh, caudal septum or the um, the anterior septal angle, um, and he, he the, what this is essentially doing is recreating uh, P. Tangi's ligament. Um, so I tried this for quite some time, but from in my hands, this was very, it's it's very cumbersome to tie this knot while you're also. Um, retracting that flap so it, it's kind of like an abdominoplasty um i know you don't do abdominoplasty but it's analogous to something called uh progressive tension sutures where you're lifting the flap but also you're trying to tie a knot at the same time so you have opposing forces i just found that i could never balance those two forces well enough to tie the knot securely and get the uh super tip break that I wanted while also visualizing that and and um, not pulling back too hard on the flap. So I I had some control but but not the type of control that that I wanted and you know I'm sure Dr. Guyron has this down um down pat but it it just wasn't working well for me. So I went back and did a literature search and and found an article from uh, Sebastian Hawk and and colleagues, and uh, you know they cited Dr. Guyron's article, but um, uh, also came up with an alternative way to do this. Um, so it's essentially the same thing. The super tip breakpoint is marked with a fine gauge needle. Um, the the skin flap is re elevated and. Uh, where that needle is passing through is well visualized once that flap is up. So a, uh, I use 6.0 Vicryl here, so I take a partial thickness bite of the skin envelope in the area where that needle has passed through. And once that bite is taken, uh, I use a 20-gauge needle to come up through the columella. So whether I'm using a septal extension graft or a columellar strut, it, it really doesn't matter. Um, but the 20 gauge needle is passed kind of like an awl, and it's passed um, on one side of the columellar strut, uh, between the strut and the medial cruse on one side. And then that suture is passed through the needle and brought out under uh, through that uh, medial curl co complex 
And then the same thing is done on the other side. And uh, we'll see if we can get, uh, and, and this video is from their article and, and it shows it very nicely. So the skin flap is temporarily closed. The area of the super tip break point is identified and a needle's passed through there. The skin flaps then opened and uh, a partial thickness bite of the skin envelope is taken uh, right at the area where uh, the needle is passed. And so that's that suture bite is taken. The skin flap is retracted and then a 20 gauge needle is passed um, between the medial curl on one side of the strut or septal extension graft and then again on the other side and that uh, the other side of the suture is passed through. And now you have a stitch from the skin envelope at the super tip break point that you have identified. And it's passed around the columella and that suture is gently tied. And we can see how, um, and you don't, you decide how tight you want that suture to be. And you can easily redo this and incrementally adjust your tension to, you know, whatever level of super tip break you want. Um, obviously in, in males, most of the time, I just want to avoid any super tip fullness. In females, I want a little bit of super tip break. But you can see in this video that now there's a, a before placement of that super tip suture and after. And, you know, that's a subtle but elegant transition from the dome to the tip defining points. So, um, and the final thing I do to ensure that I have obliterated dead space to the best of my ability is, um, is splinting. And I think splinting is in open rhinoplasty when, when all the ligaments are released. I think that splinting is a very, very important part of getting uh, the result that we want. Um, so I use, you know, I put my base layer of tape down onto the nose um, with the inf the caudal portion of the tape just above the, the uh, super tip break point. So my first layer of tape goes down. Then I use the dorsal pad and I, I use it in a T fashion with um, the dorsal pad being horizontal at the level of the super tip break point and then uh, vertical uh, along the length of the dorsum. And then my second layer of tape goes on providing compression in exactly the areas where I've worked so hard to precisely contour the nose. And um, uh, I really want, my goal at this point is to get skin to stick back down to that underlying architecture without any dead space, without fluid accumulation, without um, uh, filling that dead space with fluid and, and the uh, resultant scarring, and, which really just uh, mars the contour and, and the result that we have worked so hard for. So, um, okay, so Paul, uh, I want to uh, ask you a few questions at this point. So, um, 
Because oh, I'm, I'm off. I'm using Bauman's technique there, but Sebastian Hawk's technique looks very interesting because basically, you instead of pulling possibly the the soft uh, the tissue down directly, he's actually pulling it more cordially. Um, so that's interesting for me. But mm-hmm. why necessarily have to be using the twenty gauge needles? Can't you get a needle through that space and around the columella and back up through the other space? Um, well, so at that point in the case, I've, I've, uh, my, you know, that leg of the tripod is very well fortified. So I've got medial cura sewn to my columellar strut. So, uh, whether it's a strut or a septal extension graft, um, via, you know, a tongue and groove method that, you know, that leg of the tripod is, is locked in. Uh, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So medial cura is sewn to columella sure. strut and, uh, and, and contralateral medial cruz. So to just easily pass something through there would be very, you know, very difficult. Um, so you're, you're essentially just using the needle as a guide to easily pass that suture through that tight space. Okay, I've got it. Does, does that make sense, Ken? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I also I'm reminded by how you're taping the nose. Um, uh, in, in Houston, <clears throat> being being taught by Russ Cradell there soon after I was in Dallas, and he said, Cameron, you know that a bad taping job can screw up a good rhinoplasty, but a good taping job is not going to improve on a bad rhinoplasty. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Um, I, so... It's funny. I think um, a lot of rhinoplasty surgeons have differing opinions on taping. Um, uh, you know, I, in my time with um, my initial time with Dr. Guyron, I sp- I saw how much time and emphasis he placed on taping, and and that was, you know, I saw that again later with Dr. Rorick um, and uh, Dr. Cochran, uh, and I saw how much time and energy they put into taping the nose. So I, I'm, you know, a product of my mentors. I, I firmly believe that it's a, it's a big part of getting the result we want, but they're interestingly there. I've met great rhinoplasty surgeons who think that, um, everything that we do is a result of the surgery and taping doesn't, doesn't help in any way. Um, and I've, I've had this, uh, debate with with a few uh, close colleagues. Okay, carry on, eh? So, uh, yeah. So uh, this splint will stay on uh, for eight days. So I like uh, I use an a second layer of tape, obviously providing compression over this dorsal pad. Then I use an aquaplast splint. Uh, followed by a Denver splint. So I, I think that the aquaplast really molds to the soft tissues and uh, the, con- the the soft, subtle contours of the nose. And then the, the Denver splint really provides that compression of the nasal bones and, um, and firm stability of the nasal bones over the course of eight days. Uh, I also use Doyle uh, splints routinely. Um, there are some occasions when I don't use them, but in in open, you know, structural rhinoplasty, uh, where we, we 
really rely on those tissues relaminating in a predictable fashion. I, I'm a firm believer that um, support during the early uh, acute postoperative phase is very important. So I like to support the nose both internally and externally. And um, that's essentially my routine. And um, when the splint comes off at eight days, I uh, routinely tape my patients for another week. And then after that, it's um, uh, they're, they're free of any tape. Unless I have some somehow some residual tip fullness, which since I started using this method, I think in one tertiary rhinoplasty with, you know, very thick scarred skin, I, I had to tape for an additional couple of weeks. Mm. But um, other than that, I, I, I haven't had to, you know, retape noses because of super tip fullness, which has been, which has been great because that has uh, early on was such a frustrating part of, um, you know, you're so excited to take these splints off and see the good work that you've done. And then to see some super tip fullness just really takes the wind out of your sails. Mm. Um, but I, I haven't had that issue since using this technique. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Have you, okay. Um, and have I you, think that's the last slide. You know? Well, okay. That's great. So what happens though, uh, if you ha maybe you haven't experienced it too much, but if you do have super tip fullness that is evident after a couple of weeks, perhaps, um, do you give steroid injections? Uh, or what do you normally do with that? Yeah. Um, so, steroid injections is something I really grilled uh, Dr. Cochran about um, because. You know, I wanted to know when he would do it, if he had to, when he would do it, how often he would do it, what his dosage was. And um, in, for Spencer, and I'm pretty sure I'm recalling this correctly, but he wouldn't inject until six months out. Uh, and when he would, he would inject Kenalog 10 deep in the super tip and he would use a tenth of a cc, and he wouldn't inject again until I think at least six weeks later, if I if I recall. Um, he would tape in the interim before six months. He would you, you know have the patients do nightly taping. Um, um, so I, I sort of lost sight of your question there. What, no, what no, was the question? That's the, so, and taping once you've removed all the splints. Eight days. How long do you encourage patients to carry on taping for? So, prior to using Sebastian Hawk's method of, of uh, super tip stitch, I, I had patients taping a lot. But since using that technique, I can honestly say that I haven't had to ask patients to tape. Um. So that's that's been a great thing. That's awesome. No, Paul, I think it's just this has been a very informative chat. Eh? Um, firstly, our, our chat about who you are and how you got what you're doing and all that kind of the information about your mentors. But I think this is such an important part is this whole dead space thing. Um, I interviewed uh, Barman yesterday, actually. He was doing a great talk on, on um, mm -hmm. this video of primary rhinoplasty. And... 
right at the start, it was so interesting to see how he infiltrates the nose twice because he wants a bloodless feel. You know, and then he showed a stitch when he does close where Patangi's ligament used to be. Um, but I think, you know, Andy Winkler also says you've got to respect rhinoplasty. You've got to respect rhinoplasty. It's not something you just go and do. And I think unless you can learn these small little things, yeah, you're going to be in trouble. Fazal Payton said to me, Cameron, you've got to do your first 100 rhinoplasty in the city. You're not going to live in one day. So I wonder if that's why you're living in Miami now. Wait, I'm sorry, what did Faisal say? He said to me, you must do your first 100 rhinoplasties in the city that you're not going to live in one day. Oh, <laughs> oh that's funny. That's funny. No, well, I'm, I don't have any plans to leave Miami, and I, I have passed the uh, 100 mark, which uh, was a very proud moment for me. And, um, you know, I think... Um, when you have, uh, you know, if, if you love something this much and you w work so hard at it and, and you're not good at it, or, you know, there's obviously an element of unpredictability to rhinoplasty, but if you're not able to deliver for your patients for the most part, you, sh you probably ought to look for something else to do. Um, you know, uh, sometimes I joke around at becoming uh, joke around with my wife about becoming an Uber driver, but um, for the most part, uh, you know, I'm 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 proud to say that we've uh, you know we're we've got some happy patients here, and I don't have any plans on leaving Miami just yet. <laughs> now, listen, if you were driving in a Land Rover, you could be the Uber driver, but I don't want to get into a G wagon. <laughs> So, Paul, two, one last question. If people want to come and visit you, um, are you open to visitors from around the world? And how, how do they reach out? How do they contact you? Absolutely. Um, yeah, so um, very fortunate to have the University of Miami close by uh, that has a, a good residency program. And a few of the residents have come by and uh, spent some time. Um, and we, we've had a great time. And I feel like... You know, I, I've got a lot to to say um, about uh, tips and tricks that my mentors have taught me, and I'm I'm eager to pass all those pearls along. So, um, if you're interested in coming, Miami is a wonderful place to uh, take a break and do an elective. And if it's something you're interested in, please email me, and um, you know we'll we'll set something up. Awesome, and they can get hold of you on Instagram as well. Instagram, email, um, and uh, uh, yeah. Awesome. So tell me one last question. I mean, Vectra bring us this month. Do you use the Vectra camera system in your practice or not? You know, I can't afford it yet. But uh, no, it, it's, um, I'm joking. It's, it's a wonderful tool. Uh, I have not adopted it yet, uh, but but it's something we've we've been in uh, communication about, and it, it, I would say within the next six months to a year, it'll be something that I've that we've completely adopted. Oh, that's great! Eh? So, if if any of the listeners are interested, you got to email me directly, and we'll see if we can help you guys out with speaking to the right guys at Victor. I've been using it for the last five six years, and it's. Fantastic. I really enjoyed it. More, more on like the morphing and working with the plas 
patient side, the 2D photos is obviously the route to go in terms of like research and publications, etc. Yeah. So, Paul, I, I, this has been great, man. It's nice to have you on the show as our first young gun. Um, and you're looking good, man. You, 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 I'm, I'm so proud of what you're doing down there in Miami and going off on your own and setting up a private practice um, and starting the family. And I wish you guys the absolute best in this. I think the summer is starting now over there, but it's always summer in Miami. Um, and, yeah, thank you again for coming out to South Africa 18 months ago. I mean, it was just before your exams. And you flew all the way out here to be with us in Durban just for the Congress. You couldn't even stay on for the safari afterwards. But we really appreciate what you've done for us in South Africa. And I know on behalf of the listeners of the podcast from all over the world, thank you very much for your time this evening. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure, Cameron. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you know, we have so, so many uh, common interests and so much common ground between us. And uh, most importantly, thank you for your mission uh, to become a better rhinoplasty surgeon and, and make us all uh, better with, uh, with your efforts all the while. So many thanks to you and congratulations on all your success. And I can't wait to see you in person. Same, man. Thanks, Paul.